Let us open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 as we commence a study of the doctrine of repentance. In Hebrews chapter 6, the first two verses were told that it is one of the first principles of the doctrine of Christ. Repentance from dead works. We want to learn it. We want to know it well. We should know it. We want to remind ourselves of it and comfort ourselves through it. There's a number of reasons why the Lord's convicted me to preach on this today. There's several. One of them is the two articles that are over there on the table from our local paper, the Greenville News, where one man wrote the most terrible caricature of the Lord Jesus Christ and the, and the religion of Christianity. And Bob Jones III wrote into the paper to, in response. And while I'm thankful for the responsive letter, I'm disappointed by its lack of teeth. That responsive letter said, There is room at the cross for Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, pornographers, homosexuals, murderers. I deny that. There is not room at the cross for Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, pornographers, homosexuals, or murderers. There's only room at the cross for repentant Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, pornographers, homosexuals, and murderers. The word repentance isn't even in the whole article. It has no teeth. The man that wrote it is so lost on his Romans road of salvation that he can't think outside that to realize that there's 31,100 other verses in the Bible. And they condemn the heresy and vanity and folly of the article to which he was responding. There is a lack of repentance being preached in America today, and I don't want us to ever be guilty of thinking poorly of repentance. We better repent. Jesus would say, except ye all repent, ye shall likewise perish. When we look at judgments that the Lord brings around the earth, whether it's the Twin Towers of New York, whether it's the earthquake of China, whether it's the cyclone of Burma, whether it's the tsunami of Indonesia, except ye repent... Ye shall likewise perish, is what Jesus would say from Luke chapter 13. Let us be clear. There is only room at the cross for Muslims if they repent and repudiate Islam. There is only room at the cross for a pornographer if he repudiates and rejects pornography. There is only room at the cross for an adulterer or murderer like David or anyone else that repudiates and rejects Adultery and murder. Let us be clear. Jesus only befriended and ate with repentant sinners. Jesus didn't befriend and eat with sinners as sinners. He befriended and ate with them as repentant sinners. And the difference is huge. The difference is huge. Let us be clear. Jesus came for sinners, not the righteous. And when the Bible says Jesus came to seek and to save the lost 
and sinners and not the righteous. He means those who think they are righteous. The self-righteous Pharisees, Sadducees, and other leaders of the Jews. Let us be clear. The identifying mark of those sinners that Jesus came for is their godly repentance. And the Bible's full of them. They were willing to be dunked in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. They would fall at the feet of Jesus. They would kiss his feet. They would anoint his feet with oil, cry tears upon them, and dry his feet with the hairs of their head because they were repentant sinners. They would tell a crowd, Lord, I give 50% of all that I've got right now to the poor. And if I've wronged any man, I'll restore it fourfold. That's the kind of sinner Jesus went home and ate with. His name, Zacchaeus. There's other reasons that demand us to consider this subject. Repentance is absolutely necessary to please God. So his blessing or cursing is dependent upon you hearing this message. Is your life blessed? Could it be more blessed? We all can answer the same for that one. There's a curse hanging over you, as Isaiah chapter 1 verse 20 told us, unless we repent. Repentance is the key for us relating to a holy God in heaven. And he gladly receives it. He easily receives it. He receives it better than you receive the repentance of those around you. You say, but I'm a merciful person. He's more merciful. His ways are higher than your ways and his thoughts higher than your thoughts. He doesn't compromise, but he's merciful. And he forgives repentant sinners. Repentance is ignored or rejected more and more in the so-called evangelical churches of the United States. In their Arminian scheme of salvation, which is that you get to go to heaven for making some little decision to invite Jesus into your heart, they have watered that down and dumbed that down until it involves nothing. I've told you about the Lordship controversy, which I'll not bore you with, but there are whole books written on the fact that when you invite Jesus into your heart, you do not have to accept Him or admit that He is Lord and you'll still be saved. Those same people would not require repentance because they would say that then you're teaching salvation by works. There is no such thing taught in the New Testament of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I don't care if you start with John the Baptist or end up with the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 22. If you do not repent, there is no evidence of eternal life. Repentance will not be named in Saddleback Community Church in Southern California by Rick Warren today, I promise you. Go to his website, Saddleback Community. Look up their confession of faith. It'll shock you. (laughs) Do you know what this means? That doesn't mean how many pages. That means how many lines on one page. It doesn't say anything. I can promise you one thing it doesn't say. It doesn't say a thing about repentance. Because if Rick Warren were to get in that pulpit today and grab that microphone and unload on those 30,000 people that might be assembled there, next Sunday he'd only have three. And if he did it that Sunday, there'd only be 300 the next. They don't preach repentance anymore. That's how they get all these seeker-sensitive types to come in. They're not going to tell anyone that they're wrong. Do you think Joel Osteen, with his teethy, smiling grin, is going to unload about repentance? Where's a John the Baptist with his loincloth of leather, 
his camel hair, chewing, chomping on a grasshopper, and unloading about repentance. That is a Bible preacher. He came in the spirit and power of Elias. He was like Elijah of the Old Testament. That's a preacher. How about the Apostle Paul? Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But at the same time, he would comfort sinners that would repent. Repentance is often overlooked when people look at sinners. But repentance makes all the difference in the world. Give me a Mary Magdalene. No wonder Jesus appeared to her first after his resurrection. She was a repentant sinner. And so he appeared first to her. Jesus loves sinners that repent. Because that shows that they are his. And those that the Father gave him to redeem from their sins. It's a forgotten word and concept. So we're going to work on it today. There is nothing like a Bible study of repentance to destroy self-righteousness in your heart or mind. We need to come clean before the Lord. Don't you try to hide sin. The man that tries to hide sin, Proverbs 28, 13, shall not prosper. But the man who will confess and forsake them shall obtain mercy and blessing, and God will be with them. Any sin, any sinner can be forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. He does not look at any standards of men, whether in the heart of one man or in the opinion of many men. God forgives sin. It's amazing how some people will be so judgmental about sinners. Sins aren't against them. I don't care if the sin was against you. It still isn't against you. Sin is against the God of heaven. The God of heaven defines sin. He is the one that said thou shalt not and the one that said thou shalt. And therefore, when he forgives, it's forgiven. And he forgives repentant sinners. For 30 years or longer, I've heard Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14 bandied about like the panacea for America. If my people, and I'm not making fun of the word of God. I'm making fun of those people that like to quote mantras. If my people, which are called by my name, Well, then why don't you get into the second half of that verse? Shall humble themselves and repent. Then I will hear from heaven and will heal their land. But you know what? I've heard that thing bandied about so many times. And this is what it creates. The men who quoted that are responsible for this. When the Twin Towers fall down in New York, and I don't care why they fell down. I could not care less. I don't care if President George W. Bush himself lit the fuse. Because it doesn't matter. They fell down. It doesn't matter how or why they fell down. They fell down because God sent them down to give a warning to this nation. But do you know what this nation did in the face of 9-11? They gathered on the Capitol steps in Washington and sang, God bless America. It wasn't time to sing, God bless America. It was time to sing, God save America. And it was time to preach, repent. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Do you know that there was a single tower that fell down in Jesus' day? Do you know that? You can read about it in Luke 13. The twin towers is nothing new. 
A tower fell down and killed people in Luke 13. And it, that news was brought to Jesus, and Jesus said, Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. That's what should have been preached. Singing, God bless America? There's nothing to bless about America. The wickedness of the people that were singing that songs on the steps of our Capitol building? They're legislating that two women and two men can have a marriage. Repent! Let me ask you this. For those of you that read your reading last night, did the king of Nineveh gather his court on the steps of the palace and sing, God bless Nineveh? No. No. Come on now. Did you read it last night? God bless Nineveh. Us pagan fools that have rejected his word, that will not allow the Ten Commandments in school, nor prayer in school. God bless Nineveh. No! The king of Nineveh, what did he do? He gave an order. Let's cry mightily unto God. He might save us. We don't deserve salvation, but He might deliver us from this prophesied message by Jonah. I want every one of you to get in sackcloth and ashes. I want you to put sackcloth on your kitty cats, your favorite dog, your cattle, and your favorite horse. I want you to go to bed in sackcloth. We're going to fast and we're going to beg God to save us. Did anything like that come out of our nation? Not even close. But that was the king of Nineveh. And brethren, today is a good day to be in the house of the Lord. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. All I'm saying is, God looks for repentance. And where there's repentance, there is forgiveness, mercy, blessing, and prosperity to follow. The king of Nineveh, they were pagans. They were Gentiles. They were outside the commonwealth of Israel. Did God spare them? Yes. That generation that repented was spared. Now he wiped the city out a few generations later, as the book of Nahum tells us, and as I preached to you a few months ago. Repentance is wonderful. I've heard that mantra so long. It's not enough to memorize a verse and to quote a verse. We've got to humble ourselves and repent. And as a nation, we haven't. Repentance is a whole lot more than saying the word. It involves your total self and your total life. Genesis chapter 3. You know what's in Genesis chapter 3. The fall of our race. Adam and Eve sinned against God. They knew God. He had created them firsthand. God walked in the cool of the evening. They knew Him. But what did they do about their sin? The moment they ate the fruit, they had the first consequences, the first conscious consequences. They knew they were naked. They knew they were naked. So what did they do? Wife, we've sinned. Let's seek the Lord and repent for our sin. No, let's grab some fig leaves and sew them together and make aprons to see if we can cover our shame. Oh, we still do it. We still do it. Make little excuses and try to cover our shame. 
Then they went and hid in the trees of the garden when the Lord came looking for them. They didn't go looking for the Lord. I want you to be thinking very carefully about it. Do you know the consequences of our first parents not repenting? You say, well, you're interrupting God's plan for the whole... That's okay. Just understand what the point I'm trying to make. I'm talking about repentance. Do you know what came from that one sin? Death, corruption, failure, rust, dysfunction, disease, sickness, the grave, hell, lake of fire. All of it came from that sin. And they wouldn't repent. They went and hid among the trees of the garden when God came looking for them. They were guilty before God, but they went and hid. Instead of going to God and saying, I'm guilty, like David did in Psalm 51, I acknowledge my sin. Thou art clear if you judge me. Nothing. Adam, where art thou? Genesis chapter 3. I was afraid. I'm naked. Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat of? The woman that you gave me, she made me do it. What did Eve say? The serpent made me do it. Oh, does that sound familiar? Oh, does that is just how we reason. It's in the Bible for more than just the history lesson. It's in the Bible to tell us how we think about sin. Why didn't they run out and grab the Lord God of heaven, their creator, by his ankles and beg for mercy? Because their hearts were depraved and wicked, and the heart of man is a rebel against God, and will always be a rebel against God, unless God changes that heart. Unless God, peradventure, will grant repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. That's what the Bible tells us. What a horrible event that took place in the Garden of Eden. Instead of repenting, they covered their shame by fig leaves. Instead of repenting, they hid their guilt in the trees of the garden from the Lord God that had created them and given them paradise on earth. Instead of accepting His reproofs for eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they blamed one another. If you despise these two rebels for their rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden, then repent today for anything in your heart, anything in your mind. Because if you don't repent of every single sin that might be in your life, then you're just like Adam and Eve. May the Lord have mercy upon us. If you feel distant from the Lord today, repent. He's right there for you if you'll repent. He can create a clean heart in you and renew a right spirit within you. He can restore the joy of your salvation. He can make your broken bones to dance with joy if you'll repent. You can eat the good of the land if you'll repent. Or the sword can devour you if you will not repent. Repentance is important. It's the key to the religion of God in both Testaments. There is no practical mercy, peace, or blessing from God without godly repentance. There's no claim. There's no assurance. There's no evidence or proof of eternal life without godly repentance. There is none. We must preach the truth. We can't preach this great mass of unconverted elect wandering around the earth, worshiping fat-bellied Buddhas, totem poles, and the rest. Because the Bible doesn't leave us to do that. Repent is the evidence of eternal life. It's how sinful men deal with the holy God. 
We can never be as holy as the Lord, but we sure can repent. And the Lord hears our repentance, sees it, and receives it. Look at Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. For a moment, let's consider how important it is. That is the doctrine of repentance. It's very important. It was John the Baptist's ministry. It was Jesus Christ's ministry. It was the Apostle Paul's ministry. Repent. It was Peter's ministry. Repent. Turn from your sins and turn toward the Lord. Return to your God. Run to, in the middle of the garden and grab Him by the ankles and acknowledge your sin and confess that you were conceived in iniquity and that you're full of sin and that He's just in whatever He does to you and that you know He wants truth in the inward parts and give Him that truth in the inward parts. Yea, in your heart. Matthew chapter 3 tells us about the ministry of John the Baptist who was the greatest man ever born from women. According to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He didn't say, Rejoice ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that message will go out from precious few pulpits today, though there are many pulpits. Repent ye. Chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message. Repent. When God is coming to earth and God is setting up a kingdom, there's one way of entrance into that kingdom. Repent. From our standpoint, there is one entrance. Repentance and faith. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the message of John. That is the message of Jesus. How about the apostles? Look at Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. If you've read your Bibles, you know what it says. The doctrine of repentance is important. Mark chapter 6. Verse 7 tells us that he called unto him the twelve, and he began to send them forth by two and two. And here's what they did when they went forth. Verse 12, Mark 6, 12, and they went out and preached that men should repent. Repent means to be totally sorry, crushed, humbled, broken by your sins, turning from them, rejecting them, repudiating and hating them, and turning to the Lord God of heaven and loving Him in righteousness and committing yourself to live all out, sold out for the Lord and holiness. That's what repentance is. And it's something we should be doing every day of our lives. It doesn't have to be just a dramatic one-moment conversion experience in the first part of your life walking with the Lord. It's something we should do every day. It was the ministry of the apostles. Look at Luke 24. Luke 24, Jesus told them what they would be doing for the rest of their lives. Luke 24, verse 47. Verse 45, Luke 24, 45. Let me get the whole sentence. Then opened he their understanding. Luke 24, 45. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And thankfully that message came this far. 
Because us Gentiles, by repentance, can have practical peace with God and walk with God and find the practical remission of sins and lay hold of eternal life by repentance. Oh, we could go on and look at, look at other references. Let me get your attention, though. You don't have forever to repent. Proverbs 29 and verse 1, do you know it? Say it with me to yourselves. He, that being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without Remedy. What does it mean to harden your neck and resist reproofs? It's the opposite of repentance. Repentance is to soften your neck, bow your head, and humble yourself before the God of heaven who reproves us by His word and preaching and by His Holy Spirit. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. How about Revelation chapter 2 and verse 21 where a false prophetess in the church at Thyatira was given a space of time to repent and did not repent. And so the Lord Jesus Christ said He was going to destroy her and all those following her. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 21, And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Verse 22, Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Repentance is what God calls us to. There's a holy God in heaven. He created us perfect in the Garden of Eden. He created man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. Our nation is, a, is obsessed and addicted to its inventions for its own pleasure and lusts. And it greedily pursues its lusts and its pleasures. But God calls upon us to repent and to be separate from that nation. And He'll bless us in the midst of it. Do well. Learn to do well, and you'll eat the good of the land. Rebel, and the sword will devour you. I quote it for the third time. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 20. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Do you know why Jesus Christ hasn't come back yet? So that we could have today and be reminded about repentance. I don't want to get too far, too waylaid by Second Peter chapter 3 because I spent a lot of time on it myself, but it will not help me get to the end of this sermon, this subject today if I spend too long here. But let's read it again and remind ourselves. We've heard the verse abused so many times. Second Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Right. What is the promise? The promise of His coming. Where is that coming described? Right here in 2 Peter chapter 3. John Owen and others may make 2 Peter chapter 3 a 70 A.D. chapter. I do not. Because this chapter is describing the heavens and the earth that were in Noah's day being overwhelmed with water. And the, the thing that it's compared to is that they are now held in reservation for being overwhelmed by fire. It's talking about the heavens and the earth, not just a little province called Palestine in the Middle East. It's a worldwide conflagration and burning up of the heavens and the earth and the elements as we know them. That's what we've always believed. That's what we'll continue to believe until we're told differently. 
The Lord is not slack concerning His promise of His second coming. He is coming. Some men count Him slack. Some men count Him that He's not keeping His promise, but they're scoffers that would come in the last days that would say everything's been the same since the creation. Oh, they're willingly ignorant of one pretty big event, and that is the flood that God visited the earth with. But God is long-suffering to usward. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Chapter 1 and verse 2. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Wherefore, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. We are dealing with God's elect in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. When it says usward, it's talking about Peter and the elect to whom he is writing. When it says that he's, God is not willing that any, it's any of God's elect should perish. When it says that all should come to repentance, that all of God's elect shall come to repentance. So, the Lord Jesus Christ has not come so that we could have May 18, the year 2008, in order to hear about repentance and literally repent. He's long-suffering to us. What is 2 Peter about? 2 Peter is a warning about false teachers that make merchandise of God's saints. They love covetousness. They hate authority. They teach false doctrine. They are, they are clouds without rain. They are reserved to the mist of darkness, of blackness forever. Right. But they steal the faith of some of God's elect. Second Peter chapter 2 told us all about that. Look at verse, look at what it says. Verse 20, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20, For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. If you lose and go back on what God gives you, it's worse with you in the end than the beginning, because to whom much is given, much shall be required. It says in verse 21, For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment given unto them. There are two, I preached the whole chapter to you before. There are two categories of people in Second Peter chapter 2. From verse 1 all the way down through verse 19, we have false teachers that are on their way to hell. Then in the last three verses, it's describing the ones they make merchandise of, and they are the saints of God. And the repentance... We need to repent of any departure that we have made from the truth of God, whether in doctrine or practical godliness, because there are men trying to get us to do so, to depart from that God. Watch. Listen. The perishing of Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 cannot be eternal perishing, because not a single one of the elect will perish eternally, and they are not saved based on their repentance. They are saved by their election in God and sanctification of the Spirit and sprinkling of the blood and obedience of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 2. We make our calling and election sure by bringing forth the eight things that are described in 2 Peter chapter 1. Watch the warning. After I've read to you the verses 20 through 22 from chapter 2, look at what else it says in chapter 3. Verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved... What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? What is Peter's point? For these elect to save themselves from hell? Or for these elect to save themselves from perishing in the corruption of ungodliness and lascivious living? That is his point. It's in verse 11. Then it's in verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Verse 15. He's going he's to restate. 3.9. 3.15. An account 
that the long-suffering of our Lord, what long-suffering? The fact that He hasn't come yet from 3.9. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. It's giving you an opportunity to clean your life up and get right with God and get rid of sin and turn to the Lord and walk in holiness. Look at verse 17. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware. This is the danger of the perishing. Beware, lest ye also, being led away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. And to fall from your own steadfastness is to perish as far as your walk with God. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 11, where Paul is dealing with the doctrine of Christian liberty, and he speaks about meat, he says, how can you eat meat when your brother has a weak conscience and cause your brother to perish? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The other words are true, but the, the word of Scripture is perish in 1 Corinthians 8.11. I'd love to stay right here longer, but I hope I said enough for you to understand what that verse is talking about. The second coming of Jesus Christ is held in abeyance for us, word, for us, so that we'll repent. So that when Jesus Christ appears, we can meet him confidently because we are walking in godliness and holiness. And we have not been led astray by false teachers into a lascivious lifestyle. Which is what Second Peter is about. Especially if you'll read chapter 2, you'll know exactly what the lead-in is to chapter 3. And then those constant warnings, verse 11, verse 14, verse 15, verse 17. But we're to be growing in grace. And the Lord is tarrying so that we can grow in grace. So that we can repent of not living the godly lives that we should. How important is repentance? I would say that Second Peter 3, 9 makes it pretty important. That's pretty big. Let me say it again this way. The Lord Jesus Christ hasn't come the second time so that May 18th, year 2008, could roll around and we could have this assembly this day to be reminded of repentance and to repent. Right. Yes, there's more that could be said on that verse. but we, 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 If you saw what I had, you, you'd know. I don't mean anything by that. The Lord, I, I've had a wonderful time with the Lord this week about re- repentance. Look at, look at Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18. Oh, did you enjoy reading that last night? Are my ways unequal, O house of Israel? I think your ways are unequal. I love the Lord. He says, come and let us reason together. Let's talk about who's fair. There's no man on earth that will forgive sinners as fast as God when they repent truly. The Lord's the great forgiver of sins. Jesus is the great lover of sinners. There's no sinner in here beyond the reach of Jesus Christ. There's no sinner in here that Jesus Christ will turn away if you'll repent. He turns away the self-righteous. Praise His glorious name. Those who think they're something, who think, well, I'd never sin like that. He doesn't have anything to do with them. That's why their lives are wretched. Because Jesus Christ came to save, to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek and to save sinners, not those who think they are righteous. Ezekiel 18 and verse, oh, there's so many verses we could read. Look at verse 21. But if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed and keep all my statutes and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. He shall surely live. If the wicked will turn from all his sins, he's got a bunch of sins, but he can live. He'll surely live. 
He shall not die, is what the Lord says. Verse 30. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, saith the Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. What do we have before us today? Life or death? Blessing or cursing? The diff- There's not a fine line between the two. And repentance is not all that difficult. By the grace of God, you're here today. By the grace of God, you've prepared your heart. God will give you repentance if you need it. Rejoice in how easy it is. And it's easy because of the greatness of God's mercy. And it's easy because of the greatness of Christ's sacrifice. Verse 31, cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? That sounds like Romans 12, 2 to me. When it says to make yourself a clean heart and a clean spirit, we know that only God can do that, but there's a practical way that we live it out in which we do it. And Romans 12, 2 says, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. You can renew your mind and say, I'm not going to think that way anymore. I'm going to think God's way and I'm going to do God's things. That's what we're supposed to do based on the mercies of God that the first 11 chapters of Romans told us about. Verse 32, For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. God's pleasure is in men hearing the preaching of God's word and the warning of his prophets and turning from their wicked way and living. I've already quoted Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 9. If the wicked will forsake his way and turn unto the Lord, God will abundantly pardon him, for my ways are higher than your ways. Such a wonderful passage. Repentance is easy. When you look at it the way that the Lord, the Lord's presenting it to us on his reasoning table today. Or sitting at the table, we've got ourselves a good bottle of wine. For some of you, that would just be terrible to sit with the Lord and have to drink wine. But anyway, you, we've got a nice bottle of wine. We've got some good bread. And we're having communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. And he tells us how easy repentance is. If the, if, the wicked will, if the wicked will forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, I will abundantly pardon. That's what I want to give you today. I, that's what I want you to take home from this today. Do you know what the Bible tells us? In Luke 15:10, Jesus said that the angels of heaven rejoice more over one sinner that repents than over 90 and 9 just people who sit haughtily wanting to tell you about how good they are and they've never sinned that way. Ah, I would say that repentance is important based on that. The angels in heaven rejoice? That's what the Bible tells us. A repentant prostitute is better than a righteous wife in the Lord's definition of terms. And when I say righteous wife, what I mean is a self-righteous wife, a person who thinks they are righteous. Give me a repentant prostitute because it's the harlots and the publicans that came to Jesus Christ and repented of their sins and were received by him, were baptized by John and followed him all the days of his life. But it's the self-righteous who thought, who looked down and despised harlots, who sat at that dinner and despised that woman that was a sinner in that city that Jesus rejected. There's a Pharisee 
that looked down the street and saw a publican and he thanked God that he wasn't like that publican. That man went down to his house totally ignored and rejected by the Lord Jesus Christ. But that publican wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but smote upon his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He didn't compare himself to no one. He didn't excuse himself of anything. He just said, God, be merciful. Sounds like Psalm 51 and verse 1 to me. According to thy loving kindnesses and tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Jesus said, that man went down to his house justified. He had the the Spirit of God with him and the presence of Jesus Christ. Oh, it's important. Jesus drew a constant distinction in his whole life. Give me a repentant prostitute. They'll be a greater lover of the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus said so. Those who are forgiven much, love much. That doesn't mean you have to be a prostitute in order to love Jesus much. The comparison is between a repentant prostitute and a self-righteous, haughty person who doesn't think they need to repent. If you know you need to repent and you're not a prostitute, thank God for that. That you can love the Lord Jesus Christ without having to live the dissolute life of some of the women that follow Jesus. The point is Jesus forgave them all. God let us Gentile nations wander in ignorance for a long time, but now he commands all men everywhere, including Piedmont, South Carolina, to repent. That's what it tells us in Acts 17 and verse 30. When Jesus Christ addressed the churches of Asia in the first three chapters of Revelation, he said, repent. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. His own churches. So we have an opportunity to repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to feel contrition. Oh, you say, what in the world's contrition? I'll tell you what contrition is. Listen to this dictionary definition of contrite. Contrition is the state of being contrite. Crushed or broken in spirit by a sense of sin and so brought to complete penitence. I like that. A broken and a contrite spirit, O God, thou wilt not despise. We are broken and contrite when we are, con- when we are completely and thoroughly sorry, grieved, upset and angry over our sin. We are broken before the God of heaven. We know that we have sinned and violated His commandments. We have offended Him and we deserve His judgment. And so we turn from our sins. We confess them. We don't excuse them. We lay them out before Him and tell Him that it was wrong. That they did not profit us. That we perverted that which was right. And we want to follow Him and do anything He asks of us. In our That's repentance. It's to turn from sin to the Lord. It's to return from sin to the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is our great definition. You know I'm going there, don't you? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. The New Testament single verse definition of repentance given by the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The first epistle, Paul had to write and tell them all the things that they were doing wrong. And then he writes them in this epistle and says this. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. Notice, being sorry isn't enough. Being sorry leads you to repentance, which is beyond being sorry. There's more to it than that. Lots of people say, I'm sorry. 
They're sorry for getting caught. They're sorry for you knowing that about them now. But true sorrow leads to repentance, which is a total changing of your life. It's a changing on the inside and it's a changing on the outside. Now I rejoice not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. One epistle was enough. You've, cha- you've corrected yourself because of that epistle. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. The sorrow of the worldling, the sorrow of our flesh. Our natural man gets sorry that we're caught. Sorry that people know that about us. Sorry about the trouble that it brought into our lives. But that just leads to death because it doesn't bring about reformation and a change in your life. But godly sorrow leads to repentance that you never repent of. When was the last time you met a person that had truly godly sorrow and repentance for their sins that later repented of their repentance? You've never met one. Because godly sorrow and repentance is a continuing, it's a continuing state of mind about sin. That doesn't mean that we don't have interruptions to where we confess our sins again. But a person that has godly sorrow and repentance does not repent of it later. Because it is a reformation worked by God in the heart of man that is willing to bear itself and confess its sins and change its life. Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. There is deliverance and blessing of God when godly, when godly sorrow leads to godly repentance. But the worldly sorrow doesn't lead to a changed life, and so God's judgment is still over that person, and it works death. Here is godly sorrow and godly repentance in verse 11. For behold, this self-same thing. Let me now define exactly what I meant in verse 10 about godly sorrow working repentance to salvation. For behold, this self-same thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. First, what carefulness it wrought in you. You were anxious, concerned, fearful, and worried about your efforts to amend and make up for your sins. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. There was a total reversal of your spirit and a reversal of your actions so that you showed a completely different person from that sin. Paul is saying this about the whole church. Yea, number three, what indignation. You were angry at the foolishness and profanity of your sin and your efforts to protect yourself from it and hide it. You were indignant about yourself. You're not indignant about anyone else. You're not indignant about God and Him judging you for your sin. You are indignant about yourself and your sin. What does it say next? Yea, what fear. Fear. You you have intimidation and reverence toward God because you haven't met His holy standards and you know you need to correct your life to come into God's acceptance and His approval. There is holy fear, godly fear, that leads to proper repentance of changing your life. It says, yea, what vehement desire. You You were passionately inflamed and adamant to set things straight in your life. Yea, what zeal. You made intense commitments and intense changes in conduct without any procrastination to do what is right because you were full of zeal. 
This is godly sorrow that leads to godly repentance. It's in the Bible in one verse. The Holy Spirit gave us a one verse definition of what real repentance looks like. Yea, what revenge. You did anything and everything that you could to show that you were changed. And that that former lifestyle is something you hated. You had revenge against it. Seven points of pure godly sorrow that leads to repentance. What carefulness, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what zeal, what revenge, what vehement desire. Exclamation point. The Holy Spirit tags that with an exclamation point. This is godly repentance. In all things, ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. You have entirely undone my warnings, reproofs, and corrections of my previous epistle in this matter. That is godly sorrow leading to repentance. How zealous are you for the Lord? How much do you hate your sins? Do you have vehement desire and indignation against them? Then you're going to stay away from anything close to them. What did Daniel tell Nebuchadnezzar was repentance? Break off thy sins by righteousness and show mercy to the poor. Stop sinning. Start doing right. Turning from sin to the Lord. Turning from wickedness to holiness. That's repentance. It's called turning. It's called returning. For the sake of time, just listen, please. I have a hundred plus verses here because it's been a wonderful study. It's called amending your ways and your doings. You amend the way you live. In fact, it's called thoroughly amending your ways and your doings. Both of those in Jeremiah chapter 7. It's called confessing and humbling your uncircumcised heart. When you've got an uncircumcised heart, that means there's still a foreskin there of sins, rebellion, and stiff-neckedness. And you're to cut that off and humble yourself by falling before God and humbling and circum- humbling yourself and circumcising your heart by cutting off your rebellion. It's calling on God, seeking Him, humbling, praying, and turning from sin. That mantra that I mentioned earlier, Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, all in one verse, it says to call upon God, to seek His face, to humble yourself, to pray, and to turn from your sins. It includes accepting chastisement and committing yourself to godliness and begging for help. That's repentance. These are the Bible expressions for repentance. It is preparing your heart and putting iniquity far away. It is admitting God is right and you are wrong and your choice was vain and profitless. Job 33, 27. It's called mourning for iniquity like doves mourn. It's called loathing yourself for your iniquity. It's called humbling yourself. It's called being ashamed and confounded for what you've done. It's called having a new heart and a new spirit. It's called acknowledging your offense and seeking God early. It's taking words with you and turning to God with commitment and praise. Hosea chapter 14. That's when we render the calves of... Why don't we look at that one? Hosea chapter 14. Hosea Joel. We've made reference to that verse sometimes about taking words with us. But let's look at those verses because it's a, it's a description of repentance. Hosea chapter 14, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, chapter 14, verse 1. O Israel, return, 
Return is a word, is a synonym of repentance used throughout the Bible. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. There's another synonym for repentance, to turn. Say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. Does that sound just like Psalm 51? If you'll forgive me, heal the broken bones, I will praise you with my lips. I will, I will dedicate my life to your worship and your service if you'll forgive me. Verse 3, it's admitting there's salvation nowhere else. Asher shall not save us, the Assyrians. We will not ride upon horses. Neither will we say any more to the work of our hands, that is idols, ye are our gods. For in thee the fatherless find, findeth mercy. We know that mercy only comes from you and we come repenting. And the Lord says, bring the calves of your lips, bring words with you and turn unto me. Turn a page or two to Joel chapter 2 and verse 13. This is repentance. It's to hate a wicked lifestyle and to choose a righteous. It's to despise where you let sin creep into your life and to turn more perfectly to the Lord. It's to confess and acknowledge it and to dedicate yourself to His service. It's to be sold out, all out, for the Lord. Joel chapter 2 and verse 13. Verse, let's get 12. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him? Notice what it says. With all your heart, turn to the Lord. Rend your heart. Tear your heart. Instead of just tearing your clothes like they would sometimes, when it says he tore his clothes in repentance, Tear your heart instead, because that's more important. Then the Lord hears and gives a blessing. You know, sometimes it did involve sackcloth and ashes, but the Lord would rather have you rending your heart than using sackcloth and ashes. It's a whole lot more than ceremonial, formal, or verbal repentance. It is changing your life. It is hating what was there before and loving to follow Christ. We could define, we could spend more time defining it, but it's not necessary. I hope you understand the Bible is full of it. There are references galore. They are almost unlimited. If you were to look at every reference that is in any way related to repentance, which is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it's to hate sin, it's to love righteousness, it's to turn from the world and to turn toward God, it's to love Him and hate the things of the world, it's to deny yourself and to give Him all that He asks of us. Right. True repentance. It leads to salvation, not to be repented of. It leads to complete salvation and the Lord's work in your life when we truly repent. Is there anything in your life today that you should repent of? Are you estranged from the Lord? Or are you walking as close with Him as you ever have? If not, then repent and repent today.